When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folding pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat German, Richard Colts, and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. Great to be back in the studio again. Yes. Very nice. Actually, I feel like this is a sort of home. Yes. For the three of us. And when we're not here, it's not the same. It's fun, but it's not the same. I don't like the idea of other people sitting in these chairs talking about I know, rugby or whatever nonsense <laughs> it might be. It doesn't seem... These are our chairs, aren't they? We've had a busy week since last well, time. Well, on tour. So, yes. How many have you got? How many gigs, as they call it? In the... About 40. That's a lot, And I'm it? sort of 15 in. Yes. But, um, that's great. She's good. Lots of people have come. We've had a jolly old time. It's been yes. fun. But there is a weird thing about... Because the last time I did a big tour, I was in my 20s. And I'm now in my 60s. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so it lasts wild. Well, it wasn't very wild the first <laughs> time around, I'd say, Kat. But no, it's not very wild. But you must hate talking about yourself and stuff. Well, you know, Charles, <laughs> I will sit the thought of Suffering, that. Suffering, isn't it? I thought Poor my thing. tour manager said, he thought, you know... You don't sound like you're getting tired of this. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. So was it a two hours on yourself? Sort well, of thing? I've had to trim it down to two hours. <laughs> yes. It was sort of Ken Dodd length, really, but we've had to trim oh, it down. I had Ken Dodd once come to do something. Everyone said, watch out for Ken Dodd. This is a very famous English comedian. And he just didn't stop. Yeah. And he'd frequently do five hours and things. And people I saw him at the Palladium and he did four hours. <sighs> it was very funny. Yeah. Too long. You don't like long things though, do you, Charles? No, I don't. I find attention span. I mean, this is perfect. 48 minutes is yes. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I used to run a literary festival, which you very kindly used to speak at, Richard. But I'd find it very difficult because... I think people expected you to sit through their event, but I'd do this thing as the host of it. I'd say, I'm just going to sit at the back and then I'll go and listen to the other person because there's another event on. But the truth is, after 10 minutes of listening to someone, I'm sort of done. I'd noticed. (laughs) (laughs) You know what my new ambition is? What's that? Take you to a ring cycle. No, 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 no. You'd come, wouldn't you? You could put us right on all the Norse mythology. I could do, can I? Could you sit through 15 hours of Wagner? I actually don't think I could either. I'm also not that good at sitting... Still and listening to things for that. Three hours of Hamilton, even though it was excellent, was an hour and a half too long, really. Really? I just can't. I get absolutely fixated by my watch and um, realise that only a minute's gone since I looked at it last time. (laughs) I think it's called ADHD. I was going to say, it sounds a bit ADHD-ish. Have you got that too, Kat? Not quite. I do always feel like I want to do something else. I want to sit still and read something forever. a long thing. 
I mean, 10 series of The Sopranos, The Ring Cycle, mm. a day in an art gallery makes me happy. And that mm. Nordic series you're into? Ragnarok, I finished it now. <laughs> Moved on now, I'm on Australia. I'm going to an Australian one now called The Glitch. It's very good on Netflix. <laughs> with that bloke from that thing. <laughs> that one. Okay. You'd make it such a good TV critic. Yeah. <laughs> the bloke from that thing. <laughs> Excellent. Well, speaking of the bloke from that thing, should we go straight to yes. yours, Charles? Yes, I'm very happy to. It sounds as though they go together but I think they're slightly separate. And I'm doing the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. Oh. Yeah. I was just there last year, actually. Were you? Yeah. I've, yes. I've been there recently, but not last year. But what I would say about the Statue of Liberty is quite an interesting thing, because we know the French and the Americans feel a sort of an empathy because of their past of getting rid of rulers and all of that sort of thing. And in 1865, really as the American Civil War was coming to an end, a gift was proposed by the French to really sort of pat America on the back for being a viable democracy of some standing. And the idea was to commission a statue that would celebrate these virtues. So they went back to Libertas, the Roman goddess of liberty. And in her right hand, she holds the light that is the path to freedom. And in her left is a reference to the Declaration of Independence. It says the 4th of July, 1776 in Roman numerals. And so you have this common purpose and also common funding. They decided to split it so that the French were responsible for the statue and its assembly, but the Americans would do the pedestal. And it's a rather extraordinary structure in so many ways, because how do you make this? Well, they essentially made it in France and shipped it over in 200 cases, each of roughly a ton, and then reconstituted on this rather dramatic pedestal. And there was a fundraising element to it. I love the rabbit holes we come across in this. The procession when President Cleveland was going to open and unveil this extraordinary statue was a million strong in America, wow. uh, in New York. And as they went past the stock exchange, the brokers in there threw out ticker tape for the very first time. That's the origin of the ticker yes, tape. Yes, the ticker thing. tape parade comes from the inauguration of the Statue of Liberty. I'd throw your phone out now, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. Hail of smartphones. <laughs> it's on an island called Bedloe's Island originally, named after a merchant from the 1660s who bought it. There's a common theme, really, between the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, which is that both were essentially defensive outfits for seeing off the English. We were at war with the Americans in 1812, and around Manhattan they built very strong fortifications against the Royal Navy. So you have this sort of extraordinary structure but what it does is say on it, and there's a sonnet called the New Colossus, very famous Statue of Liberty thing, which I'm sure if I say, give me your tired, your poor, your I huddled masses. Where, I didn't know that's where it came from. Yes, that is from the statue itself. Hmm. And of course, Ellis Island is right a part of this structure of welcome mm. to the huddled masses. It wasn't the first port of call. It was the first federal place for processing the massive numbers of immigrants fleeing poverty and warfare and oppression in Europe. Originally, people went to Castle Garden, which is now called Castle Clinton, which has had many manifestations. It was, a, again, as I mentioned, a gun emplacement. Then it became the center of something Richard would have loved, a sort of opera and theater world. It's where P.T. Barnum 
unveiled Jenny Lind, the Swedish nightingale, in 1850. But there was a sort of a need for a processing, a thorough processing of immigrants as the numbers grew and grew. People would arrive at other ports, whether it's San Francisco on the West Coast or maybe Pittsburgh on the East. But essentially, Ellis Island becomes, from the 1st of January 1892, uh, Ellis Island becomes the place where you would be processed as a, a want-to-be immigrant. Very interesting. We know the very first person to arrive there. She's called Annie Moore. She was probably picked out because she was the quintessential ruddy-cheeked Irish girl. That's what the New York Times called her at the time. And she arrived as a 17-year-old, probably older, but she went for 17 to get a cheaper fare. She became a massive celebrity for a while. She was greeted with and given a gold coin, a $10 gold coin, and was uh, blessed by the priest and handed over to her parents who had emigrated from Ireland four years earlier. Now, she becomes this sort of extraordinary figure. People tried to follow her as a celebrity, but she, I'm afraid she dies a rather sort of miserable life, age 50, having had 11 children, six of whom die under three. It's not the American dream that she came for. But we do have other people who came and had a, a more dramatically successful life, including Irving Berlin who arrived fleeing the pogroms of Russia. He starts as a singing waiter in restaurants and then becomes a composer. And of course, you know, there are so many songs and musicals and movies that are associated with him. But God Bless America is the sort of ultimate payback of an immigrant who's come through Ellis Island. He was asked in 1938 to produce something peaceful and patriotic. And so on Armist Armistice Day in 1938, that is one of the songs that he bequeaths to the nation. And he's so successful at patriotic songs that 15 years later, he's rewarded by President Eisenhower with a gold award from the people of America. But if you think of it, Richard, you're a very musical chap, but he did White Christmas and there's no business like show business. I did mention in an earlier podcast that the naughty people in charge of Ellis Island used to fiddle around with people's names. That's not true. We've been corrected by two listeners on that. It was often a case that they changed their names oh. to try and sound more American. And there'd be questions. So it's quite an interesting process. The processing plant of Ellis Island as a function of the American government is extraordinary. The record day, they had 12,000 people turn up in one day in 1907 there. They would have to process each person. It would take between four and seven hours to do the processing. They were very lenient. I mean, only 2% of people were turned away. But part of this is rather like airlines today. The Cunard line or whichever particular carrier brought you over was responsible for the person they brought over. And if they weren't right, if they were totally amoral or very unwell, they were sent back. The shipping firm had to pay for them for free. So... On average, the average person of the 500 people processing immigrants would speak at least three languages and be able to unpick the record that the Cunard line had given them and verify it with the passenger. I'm afraid to say there is an element of classism in all of this, because if you travel first or second class, you didn't have to go through this process. It was only third class or steerage that had the ignominy of being taken. The ship would be berthed on the west side of Manhattan, then you'd be taken compulsory by a ferry round to Ellis Island to be processed. 
But your washed elites were getting much easier than your unwashed masses. They they were were in. The idea being that you were unlikely to be a financial burden on America. The same principle applies in lots of immigration law today, doesn't it? It does. And also, the reason that there was such a willing market for America to take people, because America was on the way up, and the principal hope was that you were going to bring in manual laborers, somebody who was going to build up the country and make it a better place. All sorts of interesting people who came through there who we would not necessarily seeing and have to go through the ignominy of this. So Cary Grant, born in England, was processed through here. Really? Yeah, he changed his name. He's called Archie Leach, his real name, which of course is a joke from A Fish Called Wanda. The John Cleese character calls himself Archie Leach and that. Archie Leach is a better name than Cary Cary Grant. Grant. It is in a way, isn't it? Mm. Bob Hope as well, another Englishman. Albert Einstein went through it. And Frida Kahlo, they all went through there. So people arrived in the poverty and chaos of New York. And it was a a very complicated place to settle unless you had family who could look after you. And this brings me to a a woman who is so interesting as a part of the story of Ellis Island. She was called Frances Cabrini, born in Italy in 1850. She really wanted to become a nun and she was turned down by various places for various reasons and eventually started the Institute of the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, along with seven other women. And they went to see the Pope in Rome to get his blessing to go to China to set up Christian works there. But Pope Leo XIII said, no, we don't want you going that way. We want you going back to New York. So she set up all sorts of schools and orphanages in her lifetime of this work. She did 24 transatlantic crossings, setting up 67 schools, hospitals and orphanages. And uh, she was canonised and, and became a saint in 1946. Can I tell you an interesting thing about her? She's a patron saint of parking. A, a parking? parking and yeah. of immigrants. Well, there's a prayer. <laughs> if you're looking for a parking space in New York, you say, Mother Cabrini, Mother Cabrini, find me a place for my driving machine that's very That's good. Very good. Does, he work, does he work other places or is it just Always New York? Works. Anywhere? Always. Only New York. Only New York. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. Okay. That's very good. So essentially, America at first would take pretty much anyone because they needed manpower. But it's interesting to see the progression of what was barred when. 1875, prostitutes and convicts were not allowed in. In 1882, Uh, Anyone who had committed a political offence was a lunatic or an idiot. I don't know how you judge that. So uh, whoever was judged not acceptable on this stage. It coexists with this feeling that America is a certain place of liberal values, that you then end up with political radicals in 1903 being banned. And then the Christian side comes through. Polygamists are not allowed in from 1903. There have been various squeezes on different ethnicities. There was a a movement against Chinese in the 19th century as well. Do you have a favourite fact, Charles? I do, and I'm afraid it's a Norwegian (gasps) fact. Yes. So how do I join the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island under the Norwegian flag? Well, (laughs) so it's not easy, but it was not known for a very long time where the copper that the Statue of Liberty is draped in, uh, they reckon 100 tonnes of it, where it came from. And somebody only recently found out that it comes from, and Kat is going to have the last laugh on my pronunciation, from a place called Visnes. Visnes, Visnes, in the Karmoy Island. Very good, Karmoy. Karmoy Island, and near Stavanger. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Visnes as usual. 
and essentially it was chosen this copper because it was very good in the various elements but of course it has over time got verdigris which is a lovely effect if you're using it for art but is actually a toxification of the copper surface but that's Ooh, what it? copper rust isn't it? it is it's an, an acetic acid of some sort acetic acid and then the last man through Ellis Island was not treated with the pomp of Annie Moore he was a naughty Norwegian cat <laughs> called he? Arnie Peterson. Yes. Yeah. And he was a malingerer. So you're only allowed a 28-day license if you were a member of a crew of a ship to um. be in New York. But he rather enjoyed New York. And after six months, he was arrested for still being there. And then he was put into Ellis Island and told, look, you just leave. And he didn't. And on February the 16th, 1955, he was forcibly put onto the MS Stockholm and sent away. So he's the last man out of Ellis Island. I thought his crime was going to be something a bit more exciting than that, Charles. I'm a bit disappointed now. He's very Scandinavian and not packing his rucksack correctly. (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I'm not having one. I've got a question. Yes. I've never understood why the most enduring symbol of arriving in the United States should be French. Oh, anyway, is it you think the special relationship, perhaps it would be the Brits who would have provided that, or maybe Italy, so many Italian-Americans, or so many Polish. Why were the French given the opportunity to provide such a symbolic and iconic figure to welcome people to that? I think the French regarded themselves as the epitome of the sophisticated culture uh-huh. and democracy. And they were saying to the Americans, well done, you've caught up. You're on the right track, and we'd like to mark this with a a very generous gift, which is saying, we the French think you're worthy of inclusion in our very sophisticated world. So it was rather to en bas. Well, I suppose that's true. (laughs) There's a little Statue of Liberty in Paris, isn't there? Have you seen it? No. There's a little one. Perhaps you just want a voice look it up, but it's like, I think it must have been a maquette or something, or a big maquette for the original Statue of Liberty, and it's in Paris. can't remember where, but I remember seeing it. Oh. And one in Visness. Is there one in Visness? Apparently. There's one in Visness as well. Yes, you commemorate this copper. All that Norwegian copper. Yes. Very good There's copper, copper in them there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a quarter scale replica sitting on an artificial island in the middle of the Seine. It was built in 1827. That's of the Statue of Liberty. But there are also reports that between five and eight replicas exist in Paris. Really? Apparently There's kind so. of ghost statues of liberty walking around Paris. <laughs> I think in museums, like the Musée d'Orsay. Isn't that interesting? It's sort of, this is a really nice present we gave and we'd like to have a reminder of it. We're so I don't proud to have given it. Self-regarding. Mm. <laughs> you think, I think if you yeah. give a present, you should just give That's a it. present. That's it, it should just yeah. be gone. Yeah. It's like the Christmas present you buy for somebody else and keep for yourself. It's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Thanks so much for that, Charles. That takes us over to you, Richard, about something, again, close to your heart. This time, kippers. If I die, you will find the word kipper engraved on my heart. Well, you'll probably find (laughs) bits of kipper engraved on my heart. I mean, so many of them. They'll probably occlude all the blood vessels going there and there in and there out. I've also got Norway and copper, by the way. Why is a kipper called a kipper? Very good. Mm-hmm. Well, huge controversy over that, but it's thought some that it comes from copper, that actually because of the coppery colour of a smoked brined herring gives them copper. Others think it comes from, I think it's a Germanic word, it might be a Norse word, 
of kipper, meaning a sort of basket or a creel, something for catching or holding fish. Others think it comes from the hook on a salmon's lower jaw, the kipper, which is also something that you might haul in with, because it is the catch of the sea, of course, the kipper. What is a kipper? Smoked fish, you will find anywhere. Norway, for example. I remember going to the Lofoten Islands, up there in the north of Norway, and seeing these enormous A-frames covered with cod that was drying in order that it could be preserved and eaten beyond its normal life of freshness and palatability. Well, the kipper is a close relative of that. The kipper is a herring. This is the essential kipper. There are variations on the theme. But really, when we talk kipper, we mean a herring, which is split along the dorsal fin, its guts removed. It is then brined, and it is then hung over smoke and smoked for probably about 15 hours over oak chips. What that produces is a preserved fish. But what a preserved fish. There are all sorts of stories about the origins of kippers. 1599 in Great Yarmouth, Thomas Nash writes of a fisherman there who left some fish out in a smoky kitchen one night, came down in the morning, discovered it was delightfully palatable. Amazing to try it though, isn't it? I mean, you come down and you think, oh, those are ruined. Or do you eat them? Well, like so many things that are delicacies, I wonder if they come about just from times of privation mm. that you think, well, there's nothing else to eat. And you want to quite like go, this. Yeah. Well, Woodger in the 1830s, the 1840s, I think it was, was in sea houses in Northumberland. And it was said that he invented the kipper, but it's been around for much, much longer than that. We know that partly because it's referred to in 1599. Partly also, there's a 13th century Anglo-Norman poet, Walter of Bibsworth. He writes about a red herring. Now, a red herring was actually a kipper. If you really brine your herring stoutly, it will produce a red colour. So originally kippers were known as red herrings and they prop up all the time. Do you know, interestingly, when the red herring, meaning something that's a false clue, comes into circulation? No. no. Well, that's Cobbett of the rural rides, who in the early 1800s wrote about smoked fish being used as a scent to put the hounds off chasing oh, rabbits. So, so red herring comes up. But back to the kipper. A splendid dish, highly recommended. And of course, a dish that was plentiful in England and also cheap because of the size of the herring catch. Up until the 1950s, we were landing 100,000 tonne of herring a year caught in English, British, Scottish fisheries. The herring shoals would go down the kind of east side of Scotland and England and communities would follow them from, you know, Fraserburgh right down to Great Yarmouth of fishwives gutting it. Now, some of them would just be salted and barreled and sold, interestingly, to Germany, to Poland, to Russia with a particular taste of that kind of thing. The herring trade tended to concentrate in places like the Isle of Man, for example, and still peel on the Isle of Man. They still have smokehouses there, very celebrated indeed. Parts of Scotland, Loch Fine kippers, for example, highly prized. Manx kippers generally, but of course the Craster kipper is, in my opinion, the finest kipper uh. of all, associated with the little port of Craster, Craster on the coast of Northumberland. And there I think you get the finest kipper. You want a fat kipper. They were so popular, so plentiful, that they were eaten by all classes. Yes. In 1889, when the Savoy opened, kippers was on the menu. The Lord Chancellor in the 1930s would send to Craster for three kippers in a box at a price of one shilling and threepence to be sent to him <laughs> through the post. And they still post their kippers out throughout the world. You brine it and then you hang it over oak chips normally. And it smokes in a special smokery for about 15 hours, the record. Smoked salmon, for example, takes about 40 hours. So there's not a, a long process, but it does take time to do it properly. 
In the First World War, when it was needed to supply troops, they needed to do it more quickly. So what they did was they kind of accelerated the process by painting the kippers to make them look like they'd been properly kippered. They hadn't been properly kippered with something called Brown FK, a colouring called Brown FK, Brown for kippers is literally what it stood for. And you will find now in supermarkets, there are sort of bright orange kippers. Avoid these kippers, for they have been painted or sprayed with a sort of smoky-like substance to give them a kipperish feel, but they're not the genuine article. Go to Craster, go to the Isle of Man, go to Loch Fyne and get your proper kippers. How do you cook them? Well, controversy again. I love kippers. I adore kippers. I'd eat them every day if I could. You have a problem. If you eat a kipper for breakfast, it will be with you all day. If you grill a kipper for breakfast, it will be with everyone all day because they do <laughs> tend to add their distinctive smell to everything. Now, some people say you should barbecue a kipper because that preserves you from the smell. I like to jug a kipper. I used to poach a kipper because I just think there's something about poaching that's just not quite so invasive of everybody else's peace and tranquility. But jugging a kipper, I think. So, so you fill a jug with boiling water and then you plunge your kipper into it head first and just leave it for 10 minutes. And because it is effectively already, well, it's cold smoked, it's not hot smoked, so it needs to be heated up. And then you have that. Well, you, people have it for various ways. You can have it with scrambled egg. I personally just like to have it with brown toast and butter and a squirt of lemon. And I think it's one of the finest dishes in the world. I've got a friend on the East Coast, Mark, and we go every year with a net and we drag the North Sea trying to catch herring. We never do. But luckily, we always time it so that we're back on the shore in time to go and buy bloaters. Now, bloaters are kippers that haven't been gutted, I think. Is yes, exactly. Idea? A bloater is a whole um, herring. herring. They tend to be fatter and they tend to be gamier yes. because they've got all the bits inside them. Bloaters, again, used to be very popular when the herring catch was played. To give you an idea about the diminution of the herring catch, in the 1950s, we were landing 100,000 tonnes of herring a year in British fisheries. By 1970, that had sunk by three quarters. There was massive overfishing yes. of herring stocks. So for that reason, I think it was John Silkin, who was the minister responsible at the time, he called a halt on fishing herring to allow stocks to recover. And I'm now happy to say that as of this year, herring stocks in our waters are absolutely tip-top. That's um, very good. But it's just rather embarrassing to me that some of the kippers that traditionally you'd most associate with England, where are they from? Holland. Norway? Norway. <laughs> yes. They're actually from the Baltic and actually from Norwegian seas because herrings are still plentiful there. The kipper season. Do you know about the kipper season? No. If you were a fisherman of salmon in the Thames, you would not bring your rod to the riverbank between May and December, for that is the kipper season. You can't fish salmon in that time because the salmon are too busy doing their spawning, whatever it is. So what do you eat instead? Kippers. And so ever since then, in any trade, whenever you experience a period of lean, it's known as the kipper season. So for taxi drivers and for fairground people, it's the first three months of the year are known as the kipper season. Kippering as a sort of, or being kippered, in the days when you could smoke in pubs and clubs and restaurants and stuff, people would often emerge saying they felt that they had been kippered. Smoking fish, it's a great big thing in Nordic countries, of course, Kat, isn't it? Where you yes. need to preserve fish too. Yeah, completely. I mean, that goes back forever, it seems, really. But it's just a, a sensible and clever way of keeping it beyond the season, isn't it? Because I'm so used to seeing air-dried cod in Norway that smoked fish or roll mop herrings, that kind of thing, they seem to be very popular. Not so much smoked fish, whereas I think in British and Scottish taste, smoked fish is a much bigger thing. There's also the buckle, for example, which is a, 
intensely but short smoked haddock. And there's also Finn and Haddie. There's also smoked haddock too, which is very popular. And our taste for it is returning. I think perhaps because the herring stocks are in better health now. Supermarkets and fishmongers and restaurants are saying that that British taste for kippers is returning. They're fiddly. Now, cutlery, Charles, I know. Yes. Do you have a herring fork or something? Kipper fork, sorry. Not a particularly kipper one, I don't think, but... Well, they are very bony fish. I think this is one of the reasons why it's a hard self. Partly, they look like a fish that has been in a terrible accident and then burnt to death. It's just (laughs) like a burning building has fallen on the fish. So that can be a bit off-putting for people. And it's got its head on and its fin on and its tail building and you know that kind of thing but it's actually it's a very bony dish and so it takes some experience and delicacy i think to take apart your kipper properly it's an oily fish people it's rich in omega-3 and that's one of the reasons why it takes to smoking so well because oily fish does because it doesn't sort of dry and flake so you get a lovely sweetness and a richness this is making me so well i must (laughs) say i'm torn in too this is the thing with kippers when you get non-bony kipper flesh it's as good as anything yeah you think oh that's great and then there's all these tiny little tendrils of bone and it's nasty i do so find well since i had my teeth made over which yes. are considerable expense i do find that the tiny little bones sometimes get stuck in the new gaps between my teeth yeah and then you have the delicate problem of how to remove them in a way that doesn't distress those you're lunching. But do you go for it with a kipper? I mean, do you think, right, I'm going to eat it and I'll, I'll be able to get the bones out generally? I'm happy to say, when I finished a kipper, it looks like a fish that Top Cat ate in the cartoon. <laughs> there is literally just a skeleton left. I'm very good at getting through the skin. Yes, I do. It's delicious. Now, again, a proper kipper will have a pale skin. An improper kipper, a not sufficiently loved kipper, will have dark skin because they tend to use younger kippers that are leaner. You want a fat kipper that's been around the block to give you full value. And of course, there's something just funny about kippers. There was a character in P.G. Woodhouse who was called Kipper, wasn't there? There's something about it that just seems distinctively English and quite... (laughs) Kind of, I don't know, I like to think as long as people are eating kippers, it's like having ravens at the Tower of London, (laughs) things will sort of be okay. But I cannot impress upon you enough how marvellous it would be to send off to Craster to get your Craster kippers because they'll post them to you in a box. I have a fan who sends me regularly Craster kippers and I enjoy them very much every time. I'm going to do it as soon as this podcast is over. I'm going to apply. I have a favourite fact. Yes. When was the last time a kipper was a source of political controversy? Well, that's a good question. I feel we should know that one, Kat. I think it's going to be something recent. Yeah. It was 2019. Yeah. It was the hustings for the Conservative leadership in 2019. Boris Johnson was a leading contender. And at the peroration of the speech in which he made his bid to be Tory leader, which was, of course, successful, he produced and brandished a kipper. And he said, the European Union would have us pack our kippers in ice to transport them. We've never done that before. They were just put into boxes and posted to the Lord Chancellor from <laughs> Craster for one and three a box. Complete fiction. Absolute nonsense. He made it all up. There's nothing in EU regulations which required kippers to be packed in ice. So there you go. A kipper was brandished above his head at the hostings and a claim was made about it, which, guess what, proved to be lacking in exactitude. Major red herring. Exactly. (laughs) Very good. We have a fact from our disembodied voice, I think. The uh, P.G. Woodhouse character was called Reginald Kipper Herring. Reginald Kipper Herring. We had somebody at school with me called Herring and he was known as Kipper. Of course he was. It's sort of inevitable, isn't it? Kipper Ties. Do you remember Kipper Ties? They were all the rage, weren't they? 
a wide tie which was shaped like a kipper fillet. I see. Anyway, that's probably more than you ever needed to know. (laughs) Brilliant. And I think that leaves us with my topic this week, which is going to be on calendars. It's so difficult not to go down rabbit holes of different calendars across the world. So I thought I'm staying mainly being the sort of Western calendars here. And I want to start with the word calendar, which comes from Roman terms, originally really calends, the first day of the month. And we're going to get back to the Romans later because they're an important part of the story. But also there's a few related words like calara, which is the calling out of the new moon by priests in Rome, because that's how you know the month was, was calculated. And uh, there's an, another related word, which is calendarium in Latin, which is a word for accounting, because accounts were settled on the first day of the month. Generally speaking, we think that the oldest calendars go back to about 5,000 years ago and to Babylon. And I'm going to talk about those more in a second, but quite Recently, in 2013, some archaeologists claimed to have one that dates back 10,000 years, a wow. lunar calendar in Scotland, in Aberdeenshire, actually. But I'm a little bit uncertain about this one myself. But they call it a loony solar device and claim that it was tracking the faces of the moon. And what it actually is, is an alignment of pits that were spotted as crop marks originally in aerial photographs. And... They're talking about the alignment of them, that they actually reflect these lunar faces. And if you go back further, quite a lot of people talk about this in archaeology and various artefacts. So, for example, there's some upper Paleolithic artefacts going back to 30,000 years BC from the Dordogne, a bone plate with markings on them. Again, that seemed to track the movement of the moon. How do we know? Well, we don't. <laughs> so that's, but, this is the thing. It's, it's it makes sense. Is the explanation yeah. is that either some of these sort of look like faces of the moon or there's a division into 12 of these pits. There's 12 pits. So you've got the sort of 12 lunar months. But the question is, are these astronomical observations or are they calendars? Because the sort of idea of keeping track of time with the calendar comes later on. And actually a lot of them, the early calendars, most of them are lunar based. So they're based on the moon and the, the movements of the moon. And there's three main ways that you can do it. So you can do lunar moon, so the length roughly 28 days. You can look at the year, so some things like stars, for example, when they appear. And then of course there's the sun, which gives us the 365 days and they seem to have different benefits and they don't always sort of correspond with each other a lot of them have to do with things like farming so if we go back to Hesiod for example in his works and days to 700 BC this is essentially a farmer's almanac so similar to what you could find today is tracking what happens at different seasons so the question is, with these early calendars, what is it for? Is it just so that you can tell someone when you're going to meet next, there's going to be the next full moon or whatever? Or are you actually doing it for things like agriculture, knowing when to plant things? The first sort of definite, quite complex calendars that we get go back 5,000 years to Babylon. And here we've got a system of 12 lunar months plus an extra period, a sort of 13 month, which we see in quite a lot of these systems, so it makes a proper full year. And interestingly, both in Babylon and also lots of other places, that 13th month seems to be unlucky because it's kind of a little bit outside the system. So you don't really want to do things in that particular month. Interestingly, this also, that whole system gives us the 60 minutes, 60 seconds and days uh, system as well. And then later on, that was all essentially Latinized. We also get, via the Greeks, we get the idea of the zodiac as well from the Babylonians. This sort of observation of the sun passing through the stars, that having the different symbols and the different creatures in the sky. 
We then get the calendars that we sort of know about through the Greeks and the Romans. And the Romans, especially in the early legends, so in the legend of Romulus and Remus, so the first rulers of Rome, we hear about a 10-month calendar. And that calendar begins in March. And this is the reason why September is from the world of the seventh month. So you have 10 oh, months, see, but actually yes. that's oh, the seventh. But it's not in March. So that's why it's not in the ninth yeah, month, but actually... So January and February come later. They're sort of added Bonuses. to it. <laughs> yeah, bonus extra months. Sort of everything starts November, in March. That's sort of the best way. And they also had a 13th month, actually, called Mercedonius. But anyway, so this is sort of how it starts. And until we get the Julian reform, which happens in year 45 BC. This is Julius Caesar. So what he realizes is that this calendar had become out of sync. It was passed to them via the Egyptians and to have this year of 365 days doesn't quite work. It was nearly 100 days out so something had to be done and apparently calendars and dates had been kind of manipulated by different rulers. They used sort of extra days here and there. It was all a bit Wild West at the time. But to command time itself, that's power, isn't it? Yes. A big one, isn't it? Absolutely. So you get this one year in 45 BC where they decide to change all of this and put it back on track. And that becomes the sort of Julian reform on the calendar. I rather love that it's him. I mean, one of the biggest names from ancient history. It's great that he tackled it. He should have go at everything pretty much. He's <laughs> yes. an extraordinary person. Absolutely. And just left such a mark. And so, so this is when the leap year is instituted as well. So you have every four years because his astronomers calculated that you needed to have a 365 and a quarter day year for it to all add up and that actually even since then is remarkably accurate i think it's only about 11 minutes out to make it work which isn't extraordinary just for how long immense prestige has attached itself to people who've been able to analyze the position and the meaning of stars yeah now astronomy and astrology much more i mean we divide them now but in the ancient world they were seen as much more closely related incredible who was the genius who stood there and looked up at the heavens and thought well hang on why is that doing that yeah and why is so much of it babylon what happened in babylon that just made <laughs> the invention of zero that was babylonian wasn't it so Come, many things yeah what's going on why were they so smart well i think it's partially because this is one of the first civilizations actually in mesopotamia it's got all these extreme circumstances that made them able to have the first civilizations and when you have that when you, you sort of you're not just scrabbling about for food anymore you you can do those extra things. You need organisation. Yeah, you and need you can create Absolutely. You opportunities get for people to do the work, right? So elites, essentially, of, of different forms who, who've got the time to do that. They don't just have to work. They can think about it. They can look up and go, hmm, that's funny, and actually calculate it and get the knowledge, pass it on, develop writing systems and... Anyway, rabbit hole. <laughs> but so back to our calendar, back to our Romans. So we now got this year that the, with the leap year and everything. And... That keeps on going for quite a while, but then there's an issue with Christianity. So, sorry about that, folks. Sorry, yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have Here to go, go down that route. We're just going to go a big topic from <laughs> now on. Just when everything was simple. Yeah. <laughs> people start using the Roman calendar, but then eventually various people start to question, why are we using this Roman calendar? We should have one based on the life of Christ. That's what we should be basing our calculations Perfect on. Sense. So uh, Dennis the Small, or sometimes referred to as Dennis the Little, uh, was the one who, who sort of first starts to question this. And this is where then 
the calculations around the date of Easter start to come in. Yeah. And that's, I'm sorry to say, that's when it gets quite problematic. It's so complicated. This is actually causing a lot of problems um, yeah. after a while. And it's problematic because you've had this dating system based on the faces of the moon, but Easter obviously doesn't line up with that. It only lines up every 19 years, I believe, and this is why Easter moves. So you can probably tell me why, how do we calculate Easter? I can't remember. It's (laughs) to do with the moon. There is a calculation. It's in the Book of Common Prayer about how to calculate the date of Easter. Yes. But I can't even do long But wouldn't it be so nice if Easter was the same every year? Well... It can't be, though. (laughs) If you knew, like you know, December the 25th, wouldn't it be good just to know? Well. Make life simpler for all but the clergy. Well, we like to retain the power that comes through complicating the lives of others. And, of course, we don't agree on the date. No, that's true. The Orthodox Church is there. They don't anyway, yeah. Occasionally our Easter's coincide, but most often they don't. It's only frequently that they do. If you were just to see it as a kind of secular problem, well, then, of course, yes, standardised Easter would make a lot of sense, as you would Christmas. But I think it's nice to keep us on our toes, really. Oh, God. So I think, and one at least one of these calculations, it does relate to the full moon, but it also relates to the spring equinox. Yeah. So it's the first Sunday on or after the first full moon after the spring equinox. That's it. So the 21st oh, of March. I mean, you, you, of course. you can do that. It takes, you, it takes you half a morning, but you Easily. can do that. Yeah. yeah, no problem at all. Um, but this became really, really important. And throughout the Middle Ages, some people were spending a hell of a lot of time actually working out that date. But then they realised that these calendars, again, start to slip a little bit. Bede, who's writing a lot about this sort of thing, he was one of the first to sort of realise that the calendar continued to slip, affecting the days of Easter. And you Mm. can't have that because that's the most important thing in Christianity in terms of telling time like that. And also to the Christian imagination, just as Jerusalem was like the centre of the world, then the Christian calendar was also the metric against which everything was measured because there was no other competitor everything in the universe would be measured by that metric and centered on that place yeah precisely so things would have tick along until 1582 oh, a notorious year that year bad which, year for me yeah. <laughs> and that's when pope gregory the 13th realizes that he needs to do something about these dates and about the fact that these calculations are now wrong. So this turns into the Gregorian reform, which gives us the Gregorian calendar. And he's actually had Copernicus tasked with calculating and looking at it to try to sort of work out what the sort of slippage, if you like, was. Uh, he didn't actually quite get there. But eventually they realised that they needed to move the dates by 10 days. So they decided to knock 10 days off October. Why not? I'm not sure why it was October, but for some reason. And uh, in the Catholic world, that was very quickly accepted, but not by Protestants, partially because they were very suspicious of the Pope and his... Um, What's he up to? Yeah, exactly. And what's what's behind this? So, in fact, different parts of Europe accepted this change in the date at different point. And in Britain, it wasn't accepted until 1752. Hmm. So you have a really long time period where actually you have these inconsistencies across Europe. So you essentially, you know, you can go to another country and, and the date's not the same. I've had a problem with that, actually. I wrote about a battle with the Dutch and used the Gregorian date 
And somebody wrote very huffily, said I was 10 days out. And it's just so unfortunate because you can't give it two dates. We made a right mess of church registers. We had our registers going back to the 16th century and around 1752. You can see the clerks getting into a terrible kerfuffle over what's what. And there was also, well, you'll tell us I'm sure, but there was considerable popular resistance to this. Yeah. So the person, do you know who who was the one who managed to push that through in Britain? Lord Chesterfield, who led the calendar reform bill. And that brought Britain in line with Europe. And it especially became very important because of things like trade. You know, if you're sort of Mm. writing down when something's going to arrive, do you want to actually have the same date? Otherwise, you're... Do you remember way back in the dawn of time when we started doing this and you did one on time zones? You realised that that had to happen because of trains. That's right. Yeah. And it's the same with things like trade is another reason why you need to have standardised measurements of time and space, don't you? So you can... Precisely. Like Easter Day. Oh, no, sorry. So, <laughs> so what happened was that they decided this time not October but September. So they oh. removed eleven days from September, which was really interesting. And the implications of that things like Christmas was moved essentially, and it also had implications for the tax year. So the tax year used to end on the twenty fifth of March, yeah, Lady Day, but then it was moved to the sixth of April, the end of the tax year, which it still is today. And so it should have been twenty fifth, but that's why so the tax. But something year, still. A quarter day. Still say March the 25th is a quarter day, don't they? It's also yeah. Elton John's birthday, by the way. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but and it's, Lady Day, of course. So what is Lady Day? I saw this when I was researching it. But is it Mary, it up. originally? Well, December the 25th. Oh. Go back. Nine months. Yes. Denunciation. Um, yeah. Lady Day. I see. Lady Day. I love so that. here's the church again. It's wrenching. Yes. I'm sorry to convenience you, but <laughs> wrenching all our lives to fit in with its narratives. Yes. But the yeah. narratives are the narratives that are considered sufficient to explain everything. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. So that's Lady Day. Lady Day. But do you want to know my favourite fact? Oh, this yeah. One? Speaking of other bizarre changes to calendars. Mine was the Soviet revolutionary calendar. Brilliant. This came in in 1930 and the Soviet Union introduced a new calendar, which was based on a five-day week. And this was all especially meant to improve efficiency and get people to work harder. So you had these five-day weeks, 30-day months, and then various sort of five to six monthless holidays in between. But what happened was this big chart and the days, these sort of blocks were colour coded and they had a symbol and you were allocated your colour of your five day essentially shift. But that wasn't necessarily the same as your family. So you, if you were married, your, your yes, yes. husband might have a different one, your children, your aunt. So you were sort of working on different shifts and, and in a way for sort of uh, efficiency point of view, it worked really well. But well, are you saying... That sometimes the best of intentions, people might want to standardise items through the year, but the peculiarities which sometimes disrupt that regularity <laughs> might, in fact, be quite good things that you might wish to retain and hang on to. That's just a saying. Very good point. Yeah. yeah, we're still talking about Soviet Union. I know, I know. Well, the French Revolution did it too, didn't they? Rename the months. Yeah. Yes. You know, Vendemiaire and all. Yeah. That. yeah. Exactly. So it's really, really interesting, and just seeing how people try to do that. I mean, this really didn't work. People hated it. They didn't have the same rest day. They couldn't say holidays or whatever. So it was adjusted in different ways and then abandoned all together 
February the thirtieth as well sort of came in that Ooh, with that as well. That's so really exciting. Quite I quite like fun. that. Yeah. Do you know anyone it? whose birthday is February the twenty ninth? I do. I do. So I was thinking because they are my age and they'll be fifteen next year. <laughs> <laughs> I was obsessed with that when I was little. I thought yes. I was so upset on those people's behalf that they didn't get a birthday. It's like having a birthday on Christmas Day. I always felt sorry for the Oof. people whose birthday was Christmas Very Day. Great. Yes, mine's in June, which is perfect. When it was a it's child, was great because I could sort of have. Mm-hmm. Halfway through the year. So. You get you divide up your festivities yeah, nicely. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> Couldn't be better. Calendars, calendars, calendars. I suppose, you know, you want to know when the sun is going to rise, when it's going to set. Yeah, the lunar thing to... really makes yeah. sense, doesn't it? It does. And yeah. it's so, you know, wherever you are, you can see them and you can see it happening. It's really straightforward. You don't need all that astronomical knowledge to understand that it. You and know, you need it to tie it in, don't you, to the crop cycles and yeah. to hunting and to all the necessary elements of sustaining life. Yeah. It's interesting. But that's what I have for calendars. Well, that's excellent. I think it's excellent. Lord, now we all know Elton John's birthday as well. Yes, bonus, all the things. Lady Day. Lady Day. <laughs> so, shall we go on to our disembodied voice and hear the verdict of today's competition? I think it's hard to compete with a topic that mentions Bob Hope, Cary Grant, Albert Einstein and Frida Kahlo all in one breath. So, we're going to give it to... Ellis Island, the Statue of Liberty, and the people that pass through. That's here. Another Spencer win. Very good. Excellent. So, before we go, we have to share our topics for next week. And well, actually, this is a good one I could go and do some research for because I'm going to be talking about cocktails. Ooh. So, I can research wonderful. that. Love those. Charles, you've got shipwrecks. Oh, have I? That's very good. You've written a book about that. <laughs> you have. And Richard? Edith Rigby. Oh, the great Edith Rigby. I don't know who she is. So You're going to love her. Excellent. I get the feeling there's another panacea society. No, 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 no. I mean, she's as mad as them, but in a different <laughs> way. <laughs> Perfect. That's brilliant. I like that. Brilliant. So that's it for this week, I think. And thank you to all our listeners. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. And we absolutely love reading your reviews. Do send us an email if you'd like to suggest a new topic for us to research in the future. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Don't forget that you can also find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice... Oh, how I wish I could shut up like a telescope. Oh. <laughs> That's slightly that. odd, isn't it? <laughs> That's an one. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye.